The major focus of the White House's fiscal 2024 budget request sent to Congress yesterday continues efforts to strengthen the federal workforce. It starts with a request for the largest pay raise for feds and military service members in more than 40 years. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now to dig into what else the Biden administration wants for federal employees. And Jason, we know the budget numbers are just starting points for negotiations, but let's start with this pay raise. What exactly are they saying here? The Biden administration is asking for a 5.2 percent pay raise for federal employees for 2024. How that gets broken down, Tom, we don't know whether it's going to be some locality pay and some you know standard pay raise. That's how it usually goes. But the fact is that 5.2 percent is the largest request since the Carter administration in 1980 when they asked for 9.1 percent. Now, again, it's just a starting point, no guarantees. But what's interesting about this, Tom, is they realize that, number one, with inflation, big problems. Two, the, the, the Federal Salary Council continues to find that federal employees are underpaid for the work they do as compared to the private sector. So I think the Biden administration, this is part of their approach to say, we realize pay is important as well as many other things that agencies do for their federal workers. But this is a starting point, and this is where the negotiations will begin. And presuming the FAIR Act does not pass with the 8.7, and there's nothing said in whatever they pass as a final on-the-bus or appropriations bill, then the president has that discretion to go ahead with the 5.2%. You are correct. If Congress does not weigh in at all, and they don't they don't say no to it, it does go through. But, Tom, you're getting way ahead of us. Well, I know. We're, That's we're just months at, and months away. We're just at the starting line, and you already are at the finish line. But, yes, those are some of the key points that agencies should look at. What? How does Congress react? What happens with that 8.7% adjustment from called the FAIR Act that Congressman Connolly and Brian Schatz, Senator Brian Schatz, have both pushed forward? And it does. it is a bipartisan correct. bill. Does have a Republican sponsor, which is key. The other piece that I think we have to watch is the House Republicans who have been really saying we're going to add a lot of accountability and oversight. How do they weigh in and what, where does that kind of match up with the Senate? Now, one thing to be clear about, and I think this is an underreported fact, is if you think about who is the high-ranking members of the Senate Appropriations Committee, you have a Maryland person, you have a Virginia person, you have you have delegates from the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area who are a lot of federal sure, employees yeah. exist, lead committees that are very important for to get this past the finish line. So I think that's a key factor to this. That's right. Plus, they have the unions kind of cheering this on also that are locally, and that kind of bolsters their feelings about it. So we can't really tell what the general sense of Congress is quite this early. But as you point out, even the FAIR Act does have some Republican backers. Absolutely. And I think that's why this 5.2 uh, percent, while it's not where inflation has been, which has been between 7 and 8 percent over the last year, year and a half, I think what it shows is that that there is some some appetite for a bigger pay raise. Again, what we saw this past year, Tom, was about 4.6 percent, with uh, 4.1 percent being the pay raise and a, a half a percent for locality pay. I imagine that there's going to be a lot of pressure to at least get that Again, and I know a lot of federal employees are listening, probably going, great. So I took a 4% cut instead of an 8% cut to my because of inflation. But hey, I think I also have heard from other federal employees, every little bit does help, and it's better to, than the 2 and 3% we saw in previous administrations. Sure, and they see Dreamliner pilots who make more than the president already getting deals that will raise their pay 40% over a couple of years. So you look at the greater economy, and some people are taking care of inflation. And moving beyond the numbers, what else is the White House signaling in terms of investment in that workforce, which, again, part of the president's management agenda. 
What's key about any budget document is that the policies that come from it or where, where the, the administration says we want to go. Because we know, Tom, the numbers as they get to Capitol Hill, they, they are DOA, right? Dead on arrival. Congress does what they want to do. There's some input from the White House. But so what we're looking at in terms of the federal workforce and strengthening them is a, a couple things. Number one, they want to uh, expand the federal strategic agency hiring capacity. They want to prioritize robust early career pipelines. You know, that includes paid federal internships. They want to implement strategic diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility plans. And, of course, what we've seen before is the reimagining of federal executive boards to foster better coordination, collaboration across the country. Because, Tom, as we know, 88 percent of all feds do not live in the D.C. area. So these federal executive boards can play and should play a much bigger role. Yeah, they were established back in the Kennedy administration, and they've kind of gone dormant in recent years. I remember when there were big snowstorms in, say, Boston on this station. We'd call up Boston to try to find out what's going on. But... They've gone dormant. They have to a certain extent. Some are more active than others. I think if you find the ones up on the East Coast, yes, those I think are are, are more active. The ones as you go further west, I think there maybe have been less active over the last few years. But I think that the administration sees value because – Again, who does the work each day? It's the people in the field. That's how you communicate with them. And, and to that end, Tom, they also the, the administration wants to invest in the Office of Personnel Management. This really stood out to me. Again, we'll go to numbers, and the numbers, again, are just a starting point. But the request for OPM is $464 million. That's $78 million above the 2023 enacted level. And a bunch of that $78 million is supposed to go for salaries and expenses, really to build back up OPM, which has taken a lot of heat over the last four or five years, especially during the Trump administration when they were looking to merge it with the General Services Administration and the employees started to leave and said, hey, maybe I need to find a new job. Of course, that brings pressure for OPM because then they've got to get results on getting rid of, say, the annuity figuring backlog and things like that. There's a lot of pressure on OPM, and they're, 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 I've not heard anyone at OPM ever tell me we have enough people. Again, I can say that for almost every agency across the board as well. But I think what's interesting is that what they're signaling is they want to expand, for instance, uh, the, the customer service around the idea of strategic workforce planning, talent acquisition. They want to expand the hiring experience office, which is really help to pool hiring actions, improve the applicant hiring experience. So there's some really key things that can happen even without this huge extra money. But there's, again, policy decisions that are being pushed through the budget. Right. And we do know Congress is pushing OPM on those very fronts. In the hearing earlier this week, that's what they were pressing on, especially hiring. So with money comes expectations. And Jason, I have to ask you, you must have looked at what you can glean on technology and customer experience and all those types of things. What are the early signs that they're asking for for 2024? We're still waiting to see the thick budget. This is still considered the skinny budget. But what we do know, Tom, is that for the Technology Modernization Fund, a key uh, way to get rid of that technical debt that a lot of agencies are suffering from, the administration wants $200 million. Now, remember, they've already handed out more than $700 million to to something like 38 investments, 22 agencies. So there's a lot of effort here to to continue that investment. They also want to give more money, obviously, to the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. They want to give them $145 million more for a total of $3.1 billion in 2024. Now, some of this would be $98 million, for instance, Tom, would be to implement cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure, and of course, $425 million to improve CIS's internal cybersecurity and analytical capabilities. So kind of some figures there, but again, where they want CISA to go. Customer experience, which our colleague Jory Heckman will have a full report on. I'll just give you a couple highlights. There's a big focus on investing with talent. So for instance, the GSA's Technology Transformation Service, they want to take experts from TTS and put them in agencies to help them improve 
specific areas of customer experience. One such agency would be the Transportation Security Administration, which, again, really a focus on improving the professionalization of the transportation security officers, improving that customer experience, as well as Department of State's around passport renewals, and, of course, IRS around customer experience, just from all facets of how they interact with citizens. Yes. Yeah, so this sounds like the high-impact agencies that we have been hearing about being singled out for a couple of years now. Absolutely. And I think what they're seeing is there's progress being made, but according to, uh, let's quote our friends at GAO, more progress can be made. And I think that little bit of push from some people with uh, some real expertise, I think the administration believes will be really helpful at this point in time. Well, we'll be watching for the details as they emerge in that thick budget. And we know you will. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. 
from that point on, I committed myself, you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama. 
I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.